Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Donna Emil, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Rick Ricciardi, who is a professor at the George Washington University School of Nursing and is president of Sigma Theta Tau International Honor Society of Nursing. Dr. Ricciardi also served on active duty in the Army for 30 years and held numerous clinical research and senior leadership positions within the Department of Defense, including as a pediatric and family nurse practitioner, research scientist, and educator. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. So if you could first get us started, I would love to learn, of course, more about you and specifically what first got you interested in healthcare and eventually being a nurse. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of a funny story. I guess they all are, right? They, everyone has a funny story. But mine, um, I grew up in New York City, a wonderful place to grow up. And I had a passion for math and science. So I was studying college to be a math teacher. I loved math. I was one of those kids who loved to do math problems, solve math problems. You know, I was just somewhat gifted in math. So when I finished, I uh, had a degree in applied mathematics and I was planning to go teach high school and I couldn't find the job. So my sister, who's two years younger than me, said, well, why don't you come to nursing school with me? You know, so I said, nursing school? She said, yeah, you like to teach. You like people, you know, you wanted to be a teacher. Nurses do a lot of teaching. So I said, that makes sense. So rather than go through another career, I picked up the New York Times, the Sunday Times on the next Sunday, and I looked in the job ads and there was jobs galore, lots of nursing jobs. I'm saying, good, I'm not making that mistake again. So <laughs> that's awesome. I said, you know what? I'm going to give this a roll. I like, you know, nursing, it sounds good. I, you know, healthcare, I never really thought about healthcare. So I applied and I got in. And so my sister and I went to nursing school together. We went to the same school. We we're in the same class. There was three men and 150 women in the class. That was my foray into nursing. And I never looked back. Uh, nursing, for those of, of you who don't know this, nursing is the greatest profession. I mean, without question. That's right. So that's how I got into nursing. So what about specifically then, you ended up being a nurse practitioner, right? In family medicine. So how did you make that leap from healthcare to nursing to getting into, to be a, an MP? I mean, that's definitely one of the things that I myself as a registered nurse, like tossed around in my head, if that's a track that I want to take, if that's a path I want to take. So I'm always interested what that the tipping point was for you to say, this is where I want to go. When I graduated from nursing school, I went into the military and, and I stayed there for 30, actually I had 31 years of service. And while I, my first assignment, I got assigned to William Beaumont Army Medical Center, which is in El Paso, Texas. Great city, right across from the border. It was back in the day when you can just go across the border and go into Mexico, come back. But I didn't have a whole lot of time for that because I was a second lieutenant and I worked night shift most of the time. And I, you know, I had a heavy schedule because I was low person on the totem pole, new person working in the staff nursing environment. So I originally worked in labor and delivery. Then I worked into, went into the neonatal intensive care unit. And then I went to pediatrics. So I had somewhat of a broad spectrum of the maternal child health area. And I, you know, I wanted to go to school after I finished my bachelor's degree. So I applied uh, for what back then, which doesn't exist now, 
is we had certificate programs. So you can become an NP without going for a master's. Right. So the Army had a certificate program, which was affiliated with the University of Colorado, which was the first NP program started by Henry K. Silver and Loretta Ford at the University of Colorado. The NP role was not the same uh, word as you hear of it today. When we said, we actually called them nurse clinicians back then, then nurse practitioners. You could talk to fellow nurses and say, I'm going to become an NP. They wouldn't know what you're talking about. Wow. There was only a few hundred of us, maybe maybe under a thousand when I graduated, I believe, in the country at, at that time, before the explosion in the 90s where the NP role really started to explode. So in the early 80s, you know, it was an evolving role. So I was interested in advancing my career and learning how to do new things. And the the idea of becoming a nurse practitioner, first I became a a pediatric nurse practitioner. And then I went back to school when I was faculty at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences to get my family nurse practitioner. Once I really started practicing as a nurse practitioner, it was great, I loved it. You know, it was just a great fit for me. It was something that really worked for me. I had a lot of passion. I'd wake up every morning with just a great deal of enthusiasm. And, you know, it was before managed care came in, before we <laughs> to 10-minute appointments. Life was great. Yeah. I had a half-hour appointment to see every patient. You got to spend time with your patients. And that was my foray into to the nurse practitioner role. Yeah, there are so many different tracks that, you know, a nurse can take, whether it's an advanced practice registered nurse or APRNs today, which is obviously very different than what we were calling it when you entered that, but so many different leadership roles and so many different clinical roles and non-clinical roles. So it's always interesting to see what draws someone to that path. And in particular, what I was reading about you as we were, before we introduced you rather, the time that you spent, you know, in the federal agency responsible for improving healthcare quality. So I'm curious, what are some of the things that you would point to as accomplishments that you did in your key focus work there? And, you know, how did nursing play a role for you, whether it's now as you're looking back or then in the work that you were doing? That's a great question. Nursing has been the core of who I am. So it it played a role across all levels of whatever position I had. For example, before I got to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, I had numerous high-level jobs within the Department of Defense. So I moved from being a clinician that cared for individual patients and then perhaps communities to moving into more of a larger responsibility role where I was taking care of bases. And then you know, from taking care of an, you know, a base and a healthcare on a base, moving to healthcare across the TRICARE market. So I had positions of more and more responsibility within the Department of Defense, and that positioned me well to take the position at AHRQ, as well as having my, getting my PhD while I was a member of the Department of Defense. And one thing great about the military is it was a good fit for me because they really, really believe in furthering your education. So, you know, I had multiple degrees, a PhD, and you know, that was just a way to lift me up from an immigrant family in New York City to just, you know, really integrating as a productive citizen within the United States, which is what I wanted to do. I really wanted to be someone who gave back to this great country in a way that, you know, they opened their arms to my parents and my family when, when they immigrated. 
and allowed them to, you know, have a great life in this country. And I just felt that was part of the contribution that I was going to give back to the country. So that provided me with background and context to go to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which really looks at the big picture of the delivery of healthcare across the United States and to some degree internationally, and how that agency can move the healthcare quality and safety forward in a positive direction. And that really, really appealed to me. And while we were there, uh, you know, I started out as a health scientist. And then within a short time, I got promoted to be the division director. So I was the director of the division of practice improvement, which was in within the center for evidence and practice improvement within AHRQ. So we had a team and that team was, was constructed of MD, PhDs, MDs, PhDs, and health scientists that we worked primarily in ambulatory care because that was my specialty area. I call myself an ambulist. You heard of the term <laughs> hospitalist? I think I coined the term- That's creative. Ambulist. I, you know, so I like to say I'm all things primary care and ambulatory care. That's where my focus is. So while we were there, we had so many terrific initiatives. AHRQ or the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality is a terrific organization with such great employees. And, you know, they really care about what they do. You know, when I got there, we started work around the patient-centered medical home. We started really, really getting involved in team-based care. And I had a portfolio around Team Steps, created the first Team Steps for ambulatory care. Team Steps is a program that helps individuals, small systems, large systems to optimize teams and optimize care delivery using teams. So ARC already had a program for the hospital environment. And I said, we need this in the ambulatory environment. So I helped create Team Steps for the ambulatory care, which is great, it's still being used. We had programs to look at ways to help with the opioid use disorder problem. When I was there and it continues to be a problem, you don't hear much about it now because of COVID, which is you know, all consuming and, and rightly so, it needs to be in the forefront. But we still have many, many people in this country dying from heroin and opioid addiction overdoses. And so one of the things that I really felt strongly is about how can we in primary care contribute to the treatment and the reduction of mortality and morbidity related to opioid use and opioid use disorder. We also had some work around alcohol use disorder and how do we contribute to helping people who are you know, alcoholics, reducing their alcohol intake, and then perhaps getting them off alcohol. The last project that I'll probably mention is something that I felt really, really strongly about is you know, the concept of Descartes, the mind is separate from the body. We still function that way. Right. You know? Well, right. I was, we have a whole program on how do we integrate and implement behavioral mental health into primary care. So whether it's a community health center or a private primary care practice or a practice that's owned by a health system, how do we get better at integrating behavioral mental health? And I was also pushing this, but it didn't get very far, dental health in primary care. Because when you look at it, all of these things contribute to health and well-being. And for us to bucket these in, in, in different silos to me, it never really works. What we really need is a full service primary care and not necessarily a building. You know, I had this great ideas around, we need to take primary care to the people and how do we do that? And I think it's coming around in our country. I'm excited to see that there are 
innovation and with particularly with you know the pandemic and the increased use of of telehealth that primary care is becoming more flexible. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that too. And wow, the stuff that you've done in your career is amazing. And it really, really, for me, I, thank you. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. I always hope. And I didn't do it alone. Believe <laughs> me, I didn't do it alone. <laughs> well, that's right. Because nursing, we know, is a team sport, right? So it's a team sport. Yeah. <laughs> that's got to count for something. But something that you, you know, in speaking, you're alluding to a lot of these ideas and these different innovations that you helped to, you know, push along or help to create that speaks to policy, right? Like health policy. And here you are, right? Representing nurses in health policy. Tell me a little bit more about what your position is on that, your opinions on nurses, you know, advocating or being the feet on the ground for health policy. And then also one thing I always love to ask nursing leaders like you is, the nurses that are listening and that want to get involved on that level, but feel like this is not what I went to school for. Like, this is not what I've learned to do. What's your response to that? Well, those are all, you know, terrific questions. And I'm sure every nurse has those questions about policy, you know, because I'm teaching policy at GW. And I hear those questions from both undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral level nurses and healthcare professionals. So the way I got into policy is kind of backing up to what I said originally when I first started practicing as an NP. Literally, I had 30 minutes for each patient. And then managed care came in and, you know, the time went down to 20 minutes. And then not too long after that, it was 15 minutes. And then we were seeing 10-minute appointments. And that didn't work for me. But I realized much of this is being driven by the payer. It's being driven by a much higher force outside of my clinic, outside of my hospital. Right. And it soon came to me that, you know, if I want to change this, I need to become more involved in policy, get a better understanding, better get a grip around policy. That continued with my dissertation, which I looked at the impact of body armor on the ability of the warfighter to do their job. So I studied, I characterized the physiologic energy requirements of wearing body armor to perform your mission as a service member, you know, and going into harm's way. And that really forced me to get into policy because it was a time when the war was just starting and there was this big discussion on safety and uh, on, quite frankly, what is the role of women in combat? And, you know, how can women perform? So I took that as a research question. So when, when I studied the body armor and tried to look at how what are some of the decrements in physiologic function that the human body would make related to wearing body armor during a war? I oversampled for women so that I was able to study not only the Army Rangers, Navy SEALs, you know, pilots, infantry, but I also had a large sampling of women who were not in the combat arms yet. They were moving towards combat arms. So Long story short, when I got the results, it was very telling that I, I briefed a number of high-level people within the Secretary of Defense because there was a lot of interest in not only women, but what stresses does body armor put on the, the warfighter that, that might impact their ability to fight. You know, commanders are very concerned about that. Yeah. So that got me into the DOD level of of policy where I was a very, very high level of the DOD informing them on 
how women can perform, how men perform, what the differences are, so that when we make policy, you can have evidence-informed policy decision-making. That sparked my interest while I was still on active duty uh, to get involved in policy. Bringing it back to your question, I think all nurses should be really keeping up with policies in the local communities, both state level and federal level policies. Not only in healthcare, but you know, all the determinants of health, like housing, for example, food insecurities, because all of these are determinants of health. So you have to find your passion and who you are and what unique contribution you wanna make. Once you really find your passion, what is your North Star? There's going to be policies associated with that. We can't expect everyone to be in every policy and know everything that's going on, but we all have specific interests. You know, healthcare is broad, and whether it's yeah. about the delivery of healthcare, whether it's about the reimbursement of healthcare, whether it's about Title VIII funding for nurses or you know, money for education, whether it's about food, whether it's about housing, you know, it, it's very involved at any level. Yeah, I agree. With that said, I'm curious, do you imagine a future where nursing students, I'm thinking about first year nursing students, we think about like associate level pre-licensure, your very first time entering that space. Do you see a future where they're learning about health policy and we're really having these stronger conversations about leadership and how to drive change and the steps to, to be a champion of the thing that you feel passionate about? Absolutely, I think it's happening now. I have the, the saying that nurses are leaders wherever they're at, Agreed. regardless of when they're students, when they're novice nurses, when they graduate, you know, whether they've been a nurse for a hundred years like me, <laughs> we're leaders at all levels. So fundamentally getting the leadership skills and then experimenting with them. I'm a perfect example of leaders are, you know, are made, you're not born. There's very few people who are born leaders. Most of us, are leaders because we have the desire to make a change in something that we care about. And in making that change, we have to really become a leader because we wanna make that change. Perhaps nobody else does. So we have to take the lead or perhaps there's other people that are thinking about it and we wanna bring them on board and we wanna lead that effort. So regardless of where you're at, I know that people have ideas, they're creative, specifically nurses. Nurses are a very creative group. So we're always looking for ways to improve things and that's change. So how do you make change? Leadership, someone has to lead, someone has to follow and be part of it. And then together you have to come together, which I like to call as a shared mental model and, and articulate your vision so that Whatever it is that you want to change, whatever it is you want to lead can be understood. And then you can get people that are sign on the bandwagon, they'll jump on your bus and be part of whatever effort you want to. So I think it's critical for nurses. You know, it's part of who we are. We want to improve the health and well being of the populations we serve. We want to translate the science into meaningful ways so that it can be used by the end user. Science sitting, in a lab or sitting in a book that's collecting dust doesn't, doesn't help us. So these are all opportunities to lead. Yeah, I agree. And I'm jumping on your bus about that. That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. 
Now, I, I wanted to make sure that I touch on your role as president of Sigma Theta Tau. And I have some nurses that are close friends of mine, colleagues that are also part of Sigma Theta Tau. So they talk about how amazing that is. And they are just amazing nurses themselves and amazing nurse leaders. So I'm interested you know, to hear about your role there as the president. And I know you're a big proponent of professional associations. I'm a little guilty and I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest, this is our confession time. I'm a little guilty <laughs> about being a part of more professional nursing organizations. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you my personal struggle about that, but I'm curious just your, you know, your stance on that and what do you do as president? First, it's truly an honor and a privilege to serve as president of Sigma. I mean, it's just been an outstanding opportunity and it is truly something that I'm humbled by every day. And, you know, what I do is not unlike being president of any other nonprofit corporation. You know, you're the chair of the board of directors as president. So I chair the board, I'm just intelligent, great members. And the board is charged with the governance of the organization. So we're responsible for the strategic vision, where to take Sigma, and then to charge the, the paid staff, you know, the great Sigma staff, which is we have a CEO, Dr. Les Madigan, and the entire staff that work with her to operationalize and help us think through how we're going to contribute. For, I'll give you an example. During the time of COVID, when COVID hit, I was president. You know, the Sigma president traditionally does a lot of travel. Well, I've done no travel, but we've got a lot of great work done, and I've done a lot of speaking virtually. I've gotten very familiar with Zoom and other WebExes and other, and other platforms. So... What we did is we, you know, Sigma, I like to think Sigma is like a super tanker, 135,000 members, over 500 chapters in over 100 countries. That's a lot. But we were able to shift that super tanker, reinvent how we were going to move forward when COVID hit, to implement a lot of wonderful training opportunities, discussions, WebExes, meaningful kinds of conversations, which nurses have had all across the world on COVID, how has COVID affected you? What are the ethics of COVID? Early on, we had a lot of discussions on PPE. We've had discussions on the, on the burden of care under COVID and the mental health aspects that healthcare workers are feeling because of COVID. And then we still contribute to the regular kinds of things that were going on, the science of COVID, you know, because COVID is an evolving science. Remember when it first came out, we were arguing whether we should wear masks or not. Oh, yeah. So, and, you know, how long should isolation be? Should it be seven days? Should it be 10 days? Should it be 14 days? Right. You know, all those discussions were being had and there was a lot of uh, unknown in the science realm. And so we contributed to try to provide up-to-date, clear information and something that we had not even planned. You know, this is a testimony to the direction of the board, to the, the hard work of the staff, and the members of interest. So if you go on the Sigma website, you'll see something we call Find Your Forward. And under that website, there's all kinds of wonderful learning opportunities as well as connectivity opportunities. Sigma is, is you know, a terrific organization. It's, it does a lot of, has a lot of programs on leadership, which continued to try to strengthen leaders, both in the clinical realm, but also in the academic realm and the research realm. We have grants to help support uh, research. And, you know, we have lots of programs that help people to strengthen their leadership and also strengthen 
what you know specific areas in their clinical or our academic acumen that they really want to improve upon. Yeah, anytime you know I have been able to engage with Sigma at all, whether it was through colleagues or maybe just an offering that Sigma had that was open, it was fantastic. It was always just a very fantastic, well thought, well informed initiative that you know I have ever seen honestly and truly. And that that brings me back to my own personal gripe. I don't know if that's the right word, but even with uh, you know, joining professional organizations, I feel like I've personally not done a great job about that as a professional nurse. And I'll tell you honestly that one of the things that I feel like I struggle with the most is there are so many different nursing organizations. And I feel like nurses have a lot of different passions and things that they enjoy and that they really want to affect change in. And sometimes it's difficult to figure out where do I start as far as should I join that one or that one or that one? What would be, you know, your advice to nurses who are thinking about joining different organizations, but don't really know how to identify, is this an organization that would be a great fit for me? That's a great thought question. And for me, what it gets down to, what is it that you're most passionate about? And I'll give you, I'll use myself an example. The first professional nursing organization that I belong to, which I still belong to, was the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. Why did I join that? Well, I had become a brand new PNP. I was passionate about pediatric healthcare. I went on their website and I looked what their mission statement was, what their vision was, what some of the activities they had going on. And I said, you know what? This is a good fit for me. This is something that I believe in and something that I feel like I could learn from. And that's how I think people should uh, pursue whether or not they want to belong to a professional organization. Really, belonging to professional organization means three things. Can you give of your time? Can you give of your talents? Or can you give of your financial contributions? Those are the three things. Now, if you really care about a, a professional organization, but you don't have the time to get involved, but you like the work that they're doing and you want to support the work that they're doing, you become a member and you pay your dues. That dues allows the, the professional organization to do the work on your behalf, you know, whatever that behalf is. So think about what your professional role is and your professional status. Look at organizations that represent you that have values, because uh, if you belong to Sigma, we have a global value statement. And in that global value statement, it outlines what we care about who we are. We also have a mission and a vision. The vision is connected, empowered nurse leaders transforming global healthcare. That's the vision of Sigma. So get to know about your organization, go on their websites, and then decide. Now, realizing that some, uh, particularly nurses who are just starting out and are paying back their student loans, there's a monetary factor here, right? Right. You know, the more nursing organizations you belong to. However, if you feel really strongly about it, and as a professional, you, you really should understand that professional organizations represent you. They support you. And it should be a two-way street. You should be getting something from them too, which can be a lot of things. It could be networking. It could be continuing education. In my case, it was that plus leadership development. I got to test my leadership and experiment with professional organizations by being on boards of directors, by being president, I'm the past president of NAPNAP. 
I'm the current president of Sigma. These kinds of opportunities help me to become a better leader, a more capable leader, and you know, develop my own personal leadership style by learning from others. There's a lot of smart people in these organizations. And if you just observe and are curious, you can really improve the person that you are. So that's my cell, you know, S-E-L-L, not C-E-L-L. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I firmly believe that nurses and all healthcare professionals should belong to professional organizations. The number is really based on how many you want to support. Obviously, we can't be leaders in all the organizations that we support. Right, right. You know, it's best to take one at a time <laughs> and you don't have time to be involved with all the organizations. So, I mean, I don't even want to tell you how many organizations I belong to. It's a lot, but some of them I'm just contributing dues, you know, uh, because I believe in the organization and I want them to, to be successful. That's really good advice. And I'm, I'm, you can't see me right now, but I am taking notes on those tips that you have shared. So for you know our audience now, I always love to, to impart on them some type of nugget of wisdom. So we have a lot of students who are listening now who are just early in their careers or even students who haven't quite entered that. And they could be thinking of all of the things that are happening right now in the world, not just in society, uh, not just in healthcare, not just when we think about COVID and individual things as well. And what is your advice to them, to those that are listening and thinking about how do I meet the challenges of this moment, whatever this moment is for them mm -hmm. within their role as a professional, what would you say to them? Well, I would suggest that there's lots of challenges out there. And I would suggest that they think about these challenges at three levels. The first level, for me is thinking about what is the challenge in me providing direct care? So what is the challenge between me and the patient that I am taking care of at the patient nurse, patient healthcare level? And my nugget will be, I'm gonna take you back to a mentor of mine and a little bit of nursing history. The nurse practitioner role was founded by two great leaders. One of them was a nurse, or is a nurse, she's still alive. She just turned 100th on December 28th of last year. Wow. Is Dr. Loretta Ford, who's also a friend of mine. It was co-founded by another individual who was a pediatrician at the University of Colorado, who was also a friend of mine. And I'm one of the few nurses who actually had a, a relationship with Henry. Dr. Henry K. Silver, and I wrote a paper about Henry, which is published in the Journal of Pediatric Healthcare, about the 50th anniversary of the nurse practitioner role. So what the, the nugget is, Henry told me, and this, I never, never, never forgot this. It was in January, and this was in my PNP program, that was the certificate program. Every week, Henry would come on Thursday and precept the pediatric residents and the nurse practitioner students. So it was a January during flu season, and you can picture this in your mind's eye. The clinic was packed with kids. Oh, packed. no, I can see it now. And it, it was in the day of when we used medical records. There was no electronic health record yet. So in the doors that go into the exam room were this little slot 
and people would stick charts in there. For you new nurses, you don't, you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> He's talking this about paper for nobody that understands that. <laughs> yeah. We had paper records and they were in a little binder, you know, with a tab that you stuck each paper in. It had little two holes on the top. And the, and the entire history of that patient was in that record. And then you would stack these records in the back of the, you know, of the door <laughs> on the hallway side of the door. Right. You know, and when I got to my exam room, there was like nine records in that door, which means those were nine patients that were waiting to see me right now. You know, and Henry looked at me and he could see as an NP student that I was like, I was like freaking out. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So Henry took me into the room and he said, Rick, here's what I want you to do. Every time you see a patient, I want you to think about as you, when you walk in the room, how would you want your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your son or your daughter, your aunt or your uncle, your closest friend, how would you want them to be treated if someone was walking in the room? And to this day, 40 years later, before I go in an exam room, I say that same mantra to myself wow. in my head before I walk into the exam room. And it works for me. So nurses are the frontline healthcare providers that meet patients where they're at. We meet patients where they're at. Don't for, that's what we can't forget. And in meeting them where they're at, we also have to take on a position that regardless of if we're having a bad day, and we all have bad days, right? If we're having a day where we just, just feel disconnected, if we reconnect with that patient before we see them and say, how would I want so-and-so to be treated? It's flawless to me. For me, it works. So at, that's my advice at the individual level. At the team level, my advice is be respectful. Be a team player. Contribute to the team in a positive way. And that doesn't mean you can't have uh, adversity. It doesn't mean you can't have constructive types of comments. But what it does mean is that you really see each person as a person on the team. Make it a win-win, regardless of how you're moving forward. So when you're practicing team-based care, whether it's in the acute care setting, in the long-term care setting, or in primary care and ambulatory settings and same same day surgery settings, think about the team and then how you can contribute to that team and how you can be respectful of each other. And I believe you'll be very successful as a healthcare person and as a nurse, if you take that attitude. At the systems level, you really have to think about how can I get involved with policies what is something that I'm passionate about in this system? What do I care about? What is it something that I really want to contribute to? And then start reading and asking questions and be curious about what policies are out there and who's working on that policy and how can I be involved? None of us start out in policy without working with other people. So you can just, you know, that's what's great about professional organizations. You can hook up with people that are like-minded on a specific policy and then work on it. So thinking about how to be successful and tidbits of information, think about those three levels and how you can contribute 
and be involved at all three of those levels. That is fantastic and powerful. I'm feeling quite motivated myself. <laughs> Thank you for that. That is awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Ricciardi, for being with us today. And even more so, thank you for your service, 31 years of service. Thank you so much for that. Well, my pleasure. And, you know, thank you for your support of the military members and veterans everywhere. We need your support. We need the support of the American people. We need to know that you're behind us. And, you know, when you feel that, then you, you can really, really do anything. Thank you for that. I very much appreciate it. And I very much appreciate the opportunity today. And I have my little cup that says, together we can raise the line. That's right. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for everyone who's listening in. I'm Jonna Emil. Thanks again for checking out today's show. And like Dr. Ricky already said, remember, do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We are all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.